Chasing Quicksilver by Shannon Douglas. Copyright 2020. Chapter 9. What would your mother say? Imagine walking through a forest at night down a long, dark, but familiar path. It's late, it's spring, and the full moon is just able to reach through the leaves and the canopy above you, illuminating the contours of the trail in a pale patchwork of light coming down through the leaves. You've traveled this route a thousand times. Even still, the path at night alone isn't without its mysteries and tensions. Your senses are tuned to sound of the light breeze in the branches above you and to the sounds of the forest. You're surrounded by a living field of information. The sound of the frogs, the crickets, the insects, the smell of the forest and the seashore, and the movements you almost sense more than see around you in the pre-dawn darkness. You've been summoned by the elder fishermen to load the nets and ready the boats so that the two of you can set out at first light when the tide is right. And as you get closer to the shore, the smell of the salt and the tide line reaches your nose. Out of nowhere, you feel an energy rush in your core as your stomach tightens. And as the skin on your neck ripples with goose flesh, your hair stands up. You sink slightly into your knees and pivot on the balls of your feet towards the right on instinct. Your attention is drawn to a spot in the trees 30 paces away. You can't see anything in the dark, but it's as if the rest of the forest around you melts away. You can feel something there. An intention. As you reach out with your senses and focus on the spot in the dark around the intention that has its focus on you, it stiffens slightly. This familiar experience is known as the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which triggers fight, flight, and freeze responses in animals and human beings. Your body responds in moments of high alert like this by constricting the blood vessels in the extremities and shifting energy away from non-essential caloric expenditures like digesting food. This is the immediate safety level of Maslow's pyramid. The processes of the body and the psychic field contract immediately, and we focus 100% of our attention and energy on the potential threat. What is it? Not a cougar. Less deliberate. Only one presence. It's not a bear and cub. It doesn't seem to be hungry. It, it's in control and watching you. The light wind is blowing towards the stalker, so your nose is blind. Your heart suddenly pounds in your chest as it rises slowly from the ground and takes a step towards you. Your posture quickens, readying you to spring. It takes another deliberate, soft step and, and then another. If it was a wolf, there would be more. The intention pauses. The two of you are tuned into each other. Do you remember a time when you were startled? Maybe you were staying in an unfamiliar place and there was a bump in the night. And then 100% of your attention honed in on the location of that potential threat before you were even aware of it. It's a familiar experience to most people. The triggering of fight or flight response and the sensing of the threat. Though it doesn't happen as often to modern humans as it once did. There's several neurological phenomena that occur when we find ourselves in situations like this the first of which is called the orienting response. The orienting response is triggered by certain patterns of stimuli in our environment, by specific types of frequencies and light patterns, and by certain combinations of tones, sounds, and frequencies 
like the sudden explosion of movement around you when a stalking predator launches from its crouch. The advertising, marketing, and social media industry uses these frequencies and patterns to catch and hold our attention in our modern age, hijacking an instinctive survival mechanism to capture our eyeballs. This orienting reflex is connected to our limbic system, a constellation of brain structures near the base of our skulls, which is sometimes called the lizard brain. When it's activated, our nervous system reacts immediately and unconsciously to these sensory patterns and orients our attention towards novel changes in our sensory fields. We're biologically wired to react this way based on millions of years of evolution and conditioned by the three primal drives of life to protect us from danger, to seek out reproductive opportunity. An orienting stimulus, like a twig snapping nearby in a dark forest in the middle of the night, then triggers a secondary function in our brains called the agency detection system. This neurological function defaults to the assumption that in a potential threat situation, that the sound or the stimulus that triggered our orienting response has agency. In other words, we go into a rapid instinctual response and our minds and bodies assume that there is a creature with an evil intention or a human being who is a threat to us within our sensory field. Agency in this case means a conscious agent that is a potential threat to us. We instinctively assume a threat when we're triggered like this and we project agency onto the stimulus that oriented our attention. Is that a burglar in the backyard? Is it a wolf in the forest? As an adaptive mechanism, this agency detection system served human beings and all animals who could be victims of a predator by orienting us to potential threats and preparing the body for fight or flight until the fear could be resolved or action had to be taken to confront the threat or we had to flee. The agency detection system instinctively assumes that a sudden noise has agency and it's a threat to us. If the noise in the dark forest that triggered our orienting reflex was a falling branch or a pine cone, we'd survive. We'd have a false positive, but if our instincts didn't assume agency and the sound was caused by a stalking cougar or tiger, then we wouldn't survive to reproduce. So better to have a false positive than a false negative. We assume in our modern life that our senses have dulled and that we've lost the finely honed senses of smell, hearing, and sight that our imaginary fishermen might have, and the kind of sensory awareness of being able to direct one's attention 30 paces away and zero in to read the energy of the threat seems almost like a superpower. We assume that we've lost the finely honed hearing and sense of smell that wild animals might have, but there is a good argument that the acuity of those senses is still functional in most people. It's just not relevant most of the time. And so we don't pay attention to the finer distinction of these senses. Think of being in a busy social environment like a cocktail party or a sporting event and engaging in an interesting or maybe flirtatious conversation with somebody. Our attention focuses in on the conversation we're having. It tunes out all the other stimulus around us, even in a very loud and busy environment. Those capacities are still there to be utilized if they become necessary for us to adapt to novel circumstances in life. As modern humans, our attention orients to salience in our environment. It will tune into and scan for all of the three primal directives of the unconscious to respond to threats, 
to seek reproductive opportunities and to nourish the body or obtain energy. But it's also always in explorer mode, scanning for things that are important to us in other ways as well. We can zoom in on a conversation we're having in a busy and loud room, but if we hear our name from across the room, even when we're in the middle of a conversation with someone else, we can send our attention and we can pick out a conversation at a distance while we filter out irrelevant data in a slightly different way. When we think of senses, we don't often realize that we're constantly using a type of perception or sense that's called extensional awareness or the extended mind. The easiest way to understand extensional awareness is to imagine driving a car or a bicycle. When we drive a car or bicycle, we extend our perception of our body around the object or tool that we're using. We have a sense of where the wheels of the car are and where the edges of the bumpers are. And if you've ever seen someone riding a BMX bike doing tricks or stunts, that bicycle is an extension of them. Animals do this. If you can imagine an owl turning its ears independently while it scans the environment for sounds that mean lunch. When it senses something, both ears turn towards the location in space, and as all the bird's senses lock into its prey, it focuses its attention on the mouse. In the study of human perceptions, we sometimes hear that we're always bombarded with stimulus. We know that we see thousands of advertising images a day, but we're also bombarded with city sounds that never stop and the ubiquitous noises of cars and background hum of power transformers. Statistics suggest that we pick up more than 2 million bits of information in our nervous systems every second. This is an overwhelming level of data. And in order to manage the overwhelming sensory environment, a part of our brain evolved to process this at an unconscious level to determine what conversations among all the conversations at the cocktail party that we should pay attention to. Our conscious minds only become engaged at the end of a data filtering process thanks to several other limbic system functions. The limbic system acts like an attentional switch, directing our attention to salience in our environment through the hippocampus and the amygdala. I use the term salience to refer to opportunities in our environment that resonate with our primitive survival functions. In our modern world, however, salience, even though it's rooted to the three primal survival drives of all life, is complex. Things related to achieving a successful business outcome that creates wealth for an entrepreneur and for investors, for example, would be salient to the entrepreneur and to the investors because it furthers the basic biological imperatives of life. Creating wealth and security increases chances of reproductive success by demonstrating secured resources and energy for child-rearing. It also provides resources that increase our security against perceived threats. Even though we live in a sophisticated civilization, one can reduce all motivation to these simple drives. Can I eat it? Can I fuck it? Is it a threat to me? The part of our brain that has access to the full, primitive, and raw 2 million bits of sensory data coming into our systems every second constantly scans and filters this raw data and highlights things that are salient to us, to our conscious mind. This part of our brain shines the spotlight of attention on the most relevant and the most salient information within our sensory field. It does this for our awake and aware self. It does this in alignment with our three drives at whatever level of sophistication we happen to process them at. If you're in a conversation with someone at a cocktail party or a gathering and there's a conversation going on 10 feet away about your favorite subject, your unconscious filter will highlight this to you. 
If the subject is stimulating or salient enough, then both of your ears will tune to this conversation and your attention will orient to it. Our extended mind or extensional awareness can also reach into the dark night from the path you're walking on or into the backyard where there was an unexpected crash. All of our senses will converge on that place and we'll tune out all other information coming into our systems. We can wrap our attention and narrow in on information in our environments as if we were extending our senses far beyond our physical bodies. We can then construct or reconstruct the object or stimulus we're trying to understand within our field of awareness and respond appropriately to it. Back in the forest, imagine you get an impression from the dark forest 30 or so paces from you. Your extended awareness tells you that this stalker is a predator you also perceive that it's decided that you're not a target. The young coyote paces lightly back and forth, a few steps, and you begin to walk on. Its attention follows you as you cautiously continue to move towards the seashore. You keep part of your attention on the coyote to make sure it hasn't tricked you into letting your guard down. Occasionally, as you continue your walk, you catch a sense of it off the trail, curious about you, following along at a safe distance. You begin to understand that this is a kind of conversation with the coyote, testing each other, curious and playful. Modern cognitive neuroscience confirms with fMRI studies, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging, that human beings evolved the capacity to process complex social and kin relationships in our minds by engaging and utilizing another mental function called decoupled cognition. A decoupled cognition is a mental construct of a relationship. For example, with a mother or a mother figure that we construct in our minds. In other words, we hold a psychic object within our field of attention. Imagine, imagine just for this exercise that you've decided to go skydiving or hang gliding and you're telling your mother or the mother figure in your life. Regardless of whether your mother is present in your life or not, imagine how your mother would respond. Imagining this creates an internal representation in your mind of your mother, a psychic object, which is what cognitive scientists call decoupled cognition. Recognizing that people have different relationships with their mothers. If you have a challenging relationship with yours, then when you think of her for this contemplation, make sure the picture's in black and white and that she's only as tall as the tallest item in your refrigerator, like as tall as a jug of milk. You could also choose to reflect on whatever the challenge is by imagining seeing the relationship in your mind's eye as if you're watching the two of you interact from a third person's perspective, from outside of yourself. This dissociated viewpoint takes energy and charge out of the conversation or out of the object in a psychic field, let's say. If you have a challenging relationship with her, make sure that for this imagining and contemplation that when she speaks to you, she sounds like Minnie Mouse, or she speaks in a monotone, or maybe even this is a cognitive shortcut which takes the emotional intensity from a relationship in our minds. Shifting the values or the setting or the set of our memories can reduce the emotional intensity that we associate with relationships and circumstances. We all have a mother and we all have an internal cognition or what some would call a, a gestalt of mothers in our minds. And even if you never knew your mother for some reason, this is true. A decoupled cognition is a representation we have of someone within our minds 
which we interact with. Now, according to neuroscientist Dr. Andy Thompson, whose work I've paraphrased in these preceding paragraphs, our, our capacity to engage at an abstract level with this decoupled cognate allows us to navigate and manage relationships in complex communities with people when we're not in their presence. This capacity to abstract relationships moves us to the level of social and relational needs in Maslow's pyramids. It conferred an adaptive advantage upon us as social animals existing as humans do in complex societies. For example, when we're rehearsing an important conversation with someone in our minds, we're able to more successfully navigate our relationship with others from an evolutionary standpoint. We also have a faculty where we reflexively learn by reviewing interactions we've had with other people after the fact, or to be able to understand what responses we might get in advance of a difficult conversation. Who hasn't had an experience after a tense exchange with someone where we didn't think, I could have said that, or I should have said that, or that would have been a great comeback? And who hasn't successfully rehearsed a presentation, proposal, or interaction with someone in advance of doing it? These cognitive structures are functional to our evolutionary success and have utility in allowing us to manage complex relationships as social animals. We can imagine perhaps that there'd be a correlation to the Dunbar number of 150 people, the maximum limit of a, of a pre-civilization community, which we already know is the cognitive limit for human beings to be able to manage numbers of direct relationships with people. We also have the ability to manage larger cognitive maps and experience by engaging decoupled cognitions like religious figures or ancestors or spirit guides, or to follow the movements of a stalking young coyote, which is moving through the trees at the very edge of our perceptual field. The hashtag WWJD movement, What Would Jesus Do?, has been around for several years. It's a good example of how people can effectively and morally use a religious figure as a decoupled cognition to solve problems and to navigate the world in more productive ways. What this requires is that people who approach difficult situations in their lives imagine or call into their awareness or pray to the representation of Jesus, which they keep in their minds, for answers to their questions. There's no qualitative difference in the cognitive experience of this process than there are when we're imagining what our mother might say if we told her we were going skydiving or taking a new job or dating that person. We're just engaging a different internal representation, a different decoupled agent. There are also no qualitative differences between these internal representations of mothers, fathers, or religious figures than there is with a coyote that may or may not actually be following us through the forest towards the beach. This methodology and cognitive capacity to engage a decoupled cognate or a decoupled agent proves that God or spirit are just products of our midbrain functions. But these imaginary objects on the psychic plane conferred an adaptive advantage to human beings and they provide us with significant psychic utility even in our modern age. The concept of forgiveness describes the psychic utility of engaging these spirits connected to us. Many people believe that forgiveness is a process we engage in with another person who has trespassed against us and that forgiveness is about setting them free from their transgressions. Some people might believe it requires an apology to happen or, or some amends, and this is simply not the case. 
Forgiveness is the process of releasing the emotional charge that we have internally about another person. It has nothing to do with the other person. Forgiveness has to do with changing our relationship with the memory or the gestalt of the person that we believe trespassed against us and with how our unconscious minds represent that person in our mnemonic fields. If you have a memory of a relationship that brings up intense emotions, forgiveness is about releasing the intensity of those emotions, not the lessons you learn from them. And it's not about having that person back in your life or cutting them out of your life. In simple cases, just shifting our memories to black and white instead of remembering them in intense full color, or changing our memories of the voice they used, or remembering the incident or relationship as if we were watching a movie about other people, is enough to round the sharp edges of the experience of this in our minds. This process, when undertaken correctly, gives us the ability to take some control of how our unconscious directs our attention so that we're not triggered by monsters rising from the unconscious. That's what monsters are, after all. And the more of these triggers we can deactivate in our psychic fields, the more aware we can become of the currents of consciousness that we exist in without running into them. One of the ways we arrive at the capacity to decouple our cognition from our activities is when we achieve an unconscious competence of what we're doing. As we reach levels of competence in tasks, we became able to decouple our attention from the activity. For example, we become able to carry on a conversation or sing along to music while we're driving. Or we can dedicate some of our mental energy to planning our grocery list or to contemplating decisions or to processing relationships. These moments may be fleeting. If something unexpected happens in traffic or there are demands on our attention, our attention shifts away from the conversation or from our favorite song on the radio or from the laundry list we're working on back onto the task that's most salient to our limbic brain. We pass most of our waking time like this. Our attention flits between the sensory inputs and outputs that have consequence to us in the material world and between the subtle objects, daydreams, laundry lists and obsessions that populate the mental desktop of the mind when we're decoupled from immediate reality. We don't often know why we're thinking about the things we're thinking about as the mind drifts between our activities and our cognitive processes and as our attention is suddenly oriented to a danger in the midnight forest. We can imagine that when walking through the forest at night, even on a familiar path, it's unlikely we'd be focused on internal dialogue or on the aspects of a relationship with someone back in the village. It's likely that a significant percentage of our attention would be focused on navigating the path in the dark, on remembering the contours of the 10-minute walk by the landmarks along the way consciously feeling a little uneasy or anxious perhaps, trying to manage the peripheral internal voices and sensations that throw imaginary fears into our conscious awareness. When something triggers our fight or flight response, all of our attention is directed towards the threat. We evaluate the threat, determine we're not in danger, and in this case walk on with a young coyote stalking us. In the traditions of the people of Turtle Island, as I learned in the years after I met George at the Arthrology, the coyote, your companion along the path, is a trickster and a shapeshifter. The trickster and shapeshifter archetype is found universally in global myth. This trickster is a functional, decoupled cognate, like the goddess Psyche, which represents the ground of our psychic reality. It's a similar cognate to the titan Mnemosyne, 
who represents functions of the mind involving individual memories and the storage of myth in the collective unconscious. It has the same reality as the five gods whose personalities represent the five distinct currents that run through our psyches. Openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. This shapeshifter represents the attentional switching mechanism that resides in the limbic brain. It goes by many names and is represented by many forms. In many cultures, this figure is the bringer of language and symbol. It's the inventor of writing, the thief of fire, and the central figure who mediates the threshold between the conscious and the unconscious mind, and who, as an ally in the psychic plane, is in charge of executing and directing our attention to salience in our environment, that which will nourish us, that which will protect us from harm, and that which will help us support the survival of the species through successful procreation. 